Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Partial View Pod. We're happy that you jumped in on this episode because we got a really fun one for you today. And it's really timely because we'll be releasing this the week right before San Diego Comic-Con, so it is relevant, timely, wouldn't you say? I think so. It also lets me delve a little bit into my kind of area of expertise, which I, I think I referenced in like our introduction episode. I got really into fan and fandom studies when I was in graduate school, and that's kind of like where I spend a lot of my time thinking. And a lot of that centers around the world of science fiction and horror and fantasy and what is often called in fiction, you know, genre fiction. So we're here today to chat a little bit about why we see these kinds of stories told in film and in television and in literature, but maybe not so much in theater. And where these specific kinds of stories can exist in the theatrical realm and where they currently are right now. Yeah, and this is something that as far as like wider fandom and wider interests isn't super my thing. Like I don't actively dislike it, but I'm just I'm certainly not like part of any particular fandom beyond like loving Harry Potter when I was a teenager. Whereas I can see three separate TARDISes in my living room at this moment, as well as little Legos of the duo from Back to the Future. So so we're really, we're bringing the uh, fun little dynamic of like expert talks to novice here today. And one of those two experts today, other than Alex, is our guest, Andrew Agris who is a dramaturg, writer, and experienced designer, among other things. And last year, they received an MFA in dramaturgy from Columbia University. And currently, Andrew is the content manager at the Theater App and is co-producing The Witching Hour, a festival of short horror plays, which we will definitely hear more about in this episode. And Andrew believes in making theater experiential and engaging the audience in the theatrical event, which is certainly something Alex and I can get behind. So, hey, Andrew, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, we're so stoked to have you on today. And so I have like a million questions for you, Andrew. But I I have a million, (laughs) two million answers. Amazing. Before we get into that, we like to just kind of start off with something that like, we've read or watched or like something we're consuming in culture that we're just kind of enjoying at the moment that's kind of maybe informing our work maybe not but that we're really into yeah Ooh. okay i i mean i'll give two i think one of these is going to be maybe danielle's but i recently saw gray house um i won't go into too much because i don't know maybe danielle you wanted to talk about that you just saw it um i will say because i feel like this is so on brand but uh, last night and also after this podcast records, I've been playing this uh, this ghost hunting simulator online with my friends uh, called Phantasmophobia. And it's like you go into a house and you have all the tools and you like 
check the spirit box and like the EMF machine if you're getting ghost readings. So I am like very much living the virtual dream of being a ghost hunter. I that love that so and creepy. I want to play that. What system oh is that gosh. on? It's on uh, just a uh, computer, just on PC, laptop. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, is it is it available for Mac or is it only PC? Only PC. Uh-huh, like a lot of games, Yeah, that's why yeah. my brother still has a PC, because he's actually yeah. a gamer and I play The Sims. I oh. think it's coming <laughs> to more systems in August. Um, cool. They were kind of like doing like a beta release and then like the full release will be in August for like more, more things. I absolutely would watch those ghost hunting shows on like whatever not National Geographic but like like Discovery Channel or like whatever they were on. I think they were on the History Channel for a while, like when I was like a teenager. Por qué no los dos? That sounds right cuz the History yeah. Channel has a lot that yeah. is not history. Ghosts are a kind of history. Crossing my fingers it comes to steam. Um so I can so I can enjoy. Oh, yeah, it is on that Steam. Yeah. Oh, it's on oh, Steam, good. but just for PC? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Hopefully it comes to Mac then. All right. Uh, what about you, Danielle? Mine was actually not going to be Grey House, just because I know we're going to talk about it in this episode in other contexts, and because it is one of three things that I saw this weekend. Go off. So it was a packed weekend. The one that I think I want to shout out which actually, now that I'm about to say it might be Alex's, uh, is Just For Us on Broadway mm. by Alex Edelman. Uh, I got to go to that on Friday night. Alex and I went together mm-hmm. and had just the oh. best time. I was there as well. Oh, oh hey, we didn't see so each funny. other. Yeah. Oh, man. I just had the most fun. I thought, you know, just to be... I guess, like, on the nose and earnest about it as a Jew. Like, it was pretty powerful and relevant and, you know, engaged with a lot of things that I have thought about and am thinking about. And was also so fucking funny. And, like, being with Alex, too, was really fun because Alex is, uh... Can I I share the bit about your shirt? Oh, my God. Basically, I was... Alex is straight up a wasp. I'm, I'm, I'm like pretty much like very waspy. And I was wearing a shirt from my New England boarding school. (laughs) And so during the show, Alex Edelman is like cracking jokes about like, you know, the aspirational wasp identity and that being sort of the pinnacle of whiteness and... At one point during one of those bits, Alex just turns to me and goes, I'm really regretting my choice of shirt. And it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, it was on brand. It, it was... It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Now that I've sufficiently embarrassed you, what about you? What's yours? Well, okay, so Just For Us was something I was thinking about. There's actually a lot of things that are giving me a lot of joy right now. And culture, but I'm actually going to keep it on theme, and I'm going to talk about the fact that I'm revisiting Star Wars right now. And my history with Star Wars is that I didn't really grow up with Star Wars. I saw the you know Episode Four when I was a kid, and then I watched the 
first two trilogies, the original and the prequels, in my 20s. And then I saw episode seven, and then I saw row one at some point, and then I just kind of fell off. Like, they never really grabbed me. But in less than a week, I've watched the original trilogy, and I watched Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. So I plan to actually continue. I'm going to finish them out. I'm skipping the prequels because I've been there, done that, and I know to learn from my mistakes. But yeah, I plan to finish it out and then go on to the TV shows. I'm just getting super into it. I'm getting super into this world. And I don't know what it is about it that's like grabbing me now on, you know, my second watch of most of these movies. But I love them. But anyway, that's kind of what I've been enjoying and that I'm itching to get back to. I don't know if I should because I've heard not awesome things about episode nine. But um. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was a that was a mess. Yeah. Oh, okay. But I'm really looking forward to watching like the Mandalorian and that's really good. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm excited that it's finally grabbing me in a way that I know it's grabbed a lot of people. It's always like, I knew that there was something there, but it wasn't quite tangible to me. And now I'm feeling differently about it. And I think that's really cool. I have never seen a Star Wars. I, I will say, I will interject with, I'm not, I'm not a huge Star Wars myself. Um, mm-hmm. However, my favorite movie, all-time favorite movie, is Spaceballs. And today is Mel Brooks's 97th birthday. <gasps> happy birthday, Damn, Mel Brooks. Damn, happy birthday, Mel Brooks. Wow, I've actually never seen Spaceballs all the way through, but I might have to after I go on this Star Wars journey. I don't think I have either. I think I've seen parts of it because the Mel Brooks of it all, but I'm pretty sure when I first it saw it, it was before I'd even seen Star Wars. And like, I loved it then. And then seeing Star Wars made me, like, it's like I saw Star Wars to like get more out of Spaceballs. And then it's like in middle school <laughs> every month, very dramaturgical to be like, oh, I need to do this research of watching these movies to get more out of this other movie. But yeah, in middle school, I'd watch it every month like at least once a month it was just like my go-to thing yeah, yeah and then i texted danielle today but there's apparently a musical about star wars called a musical about star wars and it's about fans of star wars who want to do a musical of star wars at comic-con and this is just so far up my alley i need to go i absolutely need to go it's apparently playing in new york um through at least part of july i don't have all the information handy but uh you found it yeah. on tdf right it's on TDF, so I'm definitely going to look into going to that because I feel like, also because I'm so interested in con culture, I feel like it would just be like a very fun night out for me. Me and me alone. Yeah, I won't join you. I would yeah, get none of the jokes. Yeah, that's fair. That's <laughs> fair. Well, now that we've been chatting about what we're enjoying, let's talk about some other stuff that we enjoy like science fiction and fantasy and horror i think that one of the caveats we wanted to make right off the bat is that like these genres that we put things in these tiny little boxes of like sci-fi versus fantasy etc it's so hard to determine what fits where and there's so much crossover so we're not going to spend a ton of time in this episode sort of like debating those semantics and those categorizations 
Like, if you want to talk about, is Little Shop of Horrors more sci-fi or more horror, like, go find another podcast. I'm sorry, but, like, (laughs) I I, I don't feel like spending a lot of time on that particular topic. I mean, this also, like, gets me on my soapbox that I've been on before about genre categorizations in general, and, like, usually I'm on this soapbox about comedy versus drama as, like, distinctions at, like, the Emmys or whatever, but I, I find them more or less like they're not useless but they're mostly a marketing tool I don't think they really tell you much Mm -hmm. about they often don't tell you much about what you will actually experience in the work Um, and so suffice it to say that everything we bring up today will check off at least one of the boxes in some way of horror sci-fi and fantasy (laughs) Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we'll definitely talk about, like, the labeling of shows as such and what that means in, like, a broader purpose. But, you know, if I call one of your favorite horror shows a sci-fi show, I'm sorry. But also you're not, really. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. To get us started, Andrew, can we hear a little bit about, like, an introduction to sort of, like, how you approach these kind of like genres within theater how you think about them and your thesis research which sounds absolutely fascinating yeah you mentioned you wanted to talk about it and it's specifically like one of our questions for this episode is like why don't we see more of this in theater yeah yes oh i have i have like the answers I don't want to say that. I mean, um, I asked... Listeners, this is not a visual medium, but Andrew just like basically stood up out of the chair. Oh, yeah. I bolted forward. <laughs> no, because I, I interviewed people from traditional theater, immersive theater, theater critics, people even from video games, tabletop games, escape rooms, all different kinds of things to like get to the question of like, why don't we see more genre in theater, traditional theater? So like I have I have these answers, like a whole pool of them. Um, first, I just want to go back a little bit to the question of like putting like the genres in boxes. And something Danielle you said is that uh, it's that of a marketing tool, and that's something that in my experience I've absolutely found is it's really just a question of marketing, and that like to use um, like Rocky Horror as an example, like if you're doing it in Halloween, it's it's a horror show. If you're doing it like any other time of the year, it's a sci-fi show. And obviously it's like it doesn't matter. It's just how I've seen places market things depending upon like the time of year or if they're like, oh, people, it's a community where people like like to be scared, for example, for horror. Or if they're like, oh, this is more sci-fi, it's not going to be that scary. Um, and then same thing for like fantasy, you know, whatever it is. Uh, that, like, you want to appeal to, like, what's going on in just, like, the common zeitgeist. So, like, around the big, I don't know, like, Harry Potter waves, people be like, oh, I have, like, a fantasy thing going on. Yeah, I think it's just kind of marketing. I mean, that said, though, there are definite, like, tropes, like, certain things that are, like, definitely not, you know, speculative fiction genre works. But in terms of the ones that are, like, could be in different categories, there's also just a lot of crossover. But, yeah, so diving into the thesis... It's, it's interesting because it's not explicitly about uh, like genre work, but it kind of became about it in one aspect that I'll get to in a moment, which I enjoyed. So basically what the thesis was is experiential dramaturgy, how theater can look to more experiential mediums, uh, everything from video games and tabletop role-playing games to escape rooms and theme parks and haunted houses to just see 
how these mediums like grab people and engage with people um, and how theater, like even in small ways, can borrow from that or learn from that. Um, so what kind of started for me was coming out of the pandemic. I was like, you know, when things were like up in the air of like, we're reopening theaters, come check it out, maybe get COVID. I was like, listen, if I'm going to maybe get COVID, like, <laughs> I wanna, you know, I want there to be early on. I was like, no, I'm not going. But at a certain point, I was like, oh, like, why can't I just watch this on like Disney Plus or Amazon, you know, and like we had shows on that. Like, what is the thing that's going to really grab me? And so certain shows that had like really fun interactive lobby displays or like post show events or even things in the show that there was like a little bit of interaction or kind of like shared like community moments I was like oh that's really exciting so how can like how can more shows like learn from these things uh so how it got to talk about genres I noticed that in a lot of the very experiential mediums um immersive theater you know video games role-playing games etc those tend very heavily towards genre whereas establishment theater traditional theater not so much so I, I like to ask the question, uh, like, why do you think this is to each person I interviewed? And I got a wide variety of answers. That I'll, I'll go over uh, them now. I've kind of, like, synthesized them into, like, certain categories. So to go over them, um, one that I thought was really interesting, one person uh, said they thought that it was, uh, it came down to class and race. And definitely, like, I, I think they made a really good point. Some people, like, you know, mileage may vary. Um, because genre, popular genre, can easily bring in important social issues uh, in a way that's entertaining. Um, and, you know, I would add, like, not that theater doesn't do it, but their argument is that it's not as baked in. Um, like, the example is, like, Twilight Zone, a lot of people talk about as something that, like, really talked about social issues, like, really early on on TV, and would often be, like, really incisive about them in a way that other shows at the time, like, weren't tackling that could be one, you know, like theater is trying to diversify and, you know, many would say it is, but many would also say it has a long way to go. Yeah, I think there's a specific way of framing what you just said, where like there's, it's not to say that theater doesn't tackle those issues because it certainly does, but it doesn't often do it in a genre play of any kind. It mm -hmm. does it in like a quote unquote capital I issue play. Uh, mm -hmm. where that is the sole thesis statement of the play and isn't a component or, I guess, background information. I don't know what word I'm looking for. But it isn't part of a larger story or a larger world. Oftentimes in theater, what we've seen is that when it tackles issues, that's it. That's the only thing there's room for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that makes Little Shop of Horrors so unique. And so it's, it's so common to see a production of Little Shop of Horrors. It's so popular. And I don't think it's just because of the music. I think it's because it's a blatant criticism of capitalism and how it creates hierarchy in society mm -hmm. and reinforces yeah. hierarchies within yeah. society within skid row etc that i think has and it's very much a product of its time and its critique but also it's still hella popular and people are still gravitating towards it but i think it, little shop of horrors excels because it did something like that so i do find it really interesting 
I mean, even looking at the list of shows that we pulled up for sci-fi, fantasy, horror, for all these kinds of genre works, I mean, a lot of them are written by white people for white people. And I don't want to, I don't want to discount that. I think that's a really, really terrific point that that person made for your survey. Yeah. And I think that's like a key phrase that they gave was like in a way that's entertaining because I feel like it's like when you're going to like a capital I issue play, it's like, oh, I'm going to learn about racism. And like, that's the takeaway here. But it makes theater into homework. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm like doing my like civic duty here. Whereas a lot of genre stuff, it's like, oh, it's just baked in. Like, it's just in it. You know, like, you can go to, I mean, to use, like, film, like, Get Out is a movie about racism, but it's also, like, a really fun horror movie. And, like, that had, like, huge mass appeal. And I don't think people, like, went to it and were like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do my homework. Like, I'm going to learn something today. Uh, They were just like, oh, I want a fun horror movie. And then got, like, a great, you know, like, social message along with it that was just baked into it. Um... So that was one reason that, like, I think, like, personally, I was like, oh, this makes sense to me. Another one that a few people mentioned is that genre allows for people to tell their own stories uh, and to be creative and use imagination. Uh, So this is why, like, in a tabletop role-playing game, genre is helpful for being like, okay, what do the players imagine? There's actually a term for this called theater of the mind. It's like a big tabletop role-playing game term of just like imagining the things that are unfolding as you play this game. But on the flip side, like if theater is doing this, it's time-consuming or expensive to like show in the set all of these things with, you know, all the tech and from like a story perspective to like give you all the lore. Whereas in a game, you're like, you're just making up the lore so you don't have to be told it. So that was another reason. And then people also give the reason that, like, genre encourages interaction in other ways. For example, it can encourage curiosity or, like, some kind of trepidation. Uh, For example, like, the feeling of what's behind the door. Um, That could be, like, in a fantasy setting, like, it's going to be something magical. I'm really excited. In horror, it could be it's going to be something scary, but I kind of want to know. And then, like, sci-fi, maybe it's something where people are like, okay, I'm going to, like... It's going to be something that I'm going to have to really think about or, you know, wrap my mind around in like a, I don't know, a science way. But this also can help like delineate rules and onboard people if they're familiar with uh, a given genre. So again, for like, to use like an escape room example, if you're in a genre escape room, you kind of know like, oh, it's the spaceship control panel. Like we have to, you know, get the spaceship run again. I know how that works. If it's like a, a haunted house, it's like, okay, we have to, you know, like, if the lights are flickering, that might mean something. Um, there are certain tropes to these things. So that's why they can appear in interactive media. Um, whereas, like, that the idea of, like, having to onboard someone may not appear as much in theater. But, again, in general, like, it can, it can, it's just, like, a great way to bring people on board. If you just know a certain genre, you'll be like, oh, I know the rules of that genre. So someone else then made the point that as such, one person's point was that it can be helpful for, like, an emergent art form. So if, for example, like, take, uh, like, video games, a newer a newer art form, it can be like, oh, if you have a lot of genre video games, people immediately know, like, oh, that's a horror game, it's going to be scary, like, that's a fantasy game, it's going to be magical, I know what I'm getting into. Whereas 
their point was like theater's been around for so long that you don't have to say like oh this is the thing that like will put butts in seats you can say like oh okay like we know what theater is like you know if you like it or you don't so again another argument like has some points to it some people might be like oh i don't know some people might be like yeah i see where they're coming from and then last point that people mentioned kind of similar to some others is that the use of genre can be empowering for people especially again this is in like interactive works so if you're playing anything from you know a tabletop role-playing game to a video game to doing larp for example like if you say oh i'm a wizard that gives you this kind of power fantasy of like having those abilities of a wizard. Whereas in theater, like it can be exciting to see a character like take these things on, but it's not directly happening to you. So it's why, you know, another reason why like you may not see it as much in something that's, you know, staged. I have to say that like my, my brain is exploding right now. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Yeah, I I should say I distilled a thesis that is over 150 pages long and like a question I asked Jesus, so many Andrew. people. Um, yeah. If you, oh, uh, yeah. yeah, shameless plug. If you want to read it, it's called Experiential Dramaturgy. It is available for free online. You can download it, read it, cite it, whatever you want to do. Okay, that's that's my plug. I suppose we'll link to it in the show notes for any of the like yeah. real nerds. Oh, yeah. 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 Like me. Like hands up. Yeah. I will be reading this on the train tomorrow. <laughs> Lots to go off of there. I think that like none of those points can be understated. Yeah, I think in like different contexts, it's a combination of different pieces of that. For sure. And in terms of like why we don't see genre theater, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about production challenges because I once worked on an immersive zombie party on a boat that's a sentence I say once in a while and I like it was a, it was a play it was not a real zombie party I'm just gonna put that out there but um there's this idea that when you're putting up something that involves a lot of effects you want it to look real especially if you want it to be like immersive and so if it doesn't and if it looks cheap which it often does in like say yeah. the off off Broadway sphere where I was working on this show then it's not going to have the same effect. I think a lot of horror, fantasy, sci-fi pieces rely on this idea in theater that what you're seeing is real and what and that is how the audience is going to relate to it. It is difficult. It's difficult monetarily um, and it's difficult technically. But there's also the argument, I think, that for theater in particular that you pointed out it's like we're already by virtue of the fact that we are sitting in a theater and watching a play we are suspending our disbelief and we are also that puts us in a frame of mind us being like the audience in general in a frame of mind where design wise and like production value wise often less is more and like the scariest thing to do on stage is leave it up to the audience's imagination and so that actually kind of I think counteracts the argument about like expensive high-tech production value I think that both are valid like I think that absolutely yeah. both are valid yeah. I think that Peter and the star catcher cannot function the way Harry Potter and the cursed child functions I think Harry Potter and the cursed child cannot function the way that Peter and the star catcher 
functions. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned 100%. both of those yeah. because I, I actually I do feel like there's this kind of interesting almost like bell curve uh, that a lot of genre work is either like really high budget, highly produced stuff like Harry Potter and the Cursed mm-hmm. Child, or it's kind of like spoof or parody or comedy in mm-hmm. in the way that like you know Peter and the Starcatcher, um, which yes. I haven't seen but I know it like has a lot of humor. Yeah. People have told me and like a lot of you know kinds of things where um, like I'll give the example of uh, well I mean there are a few shows that I like I have in the list but um, you know something like uh, Puffs for example um, mm-hmm. where it's like actually yeah I think maybe that's the perfect counterpoint is it's like yeah, Harry Potter and the yeah. Cursed Child on one hand and Puffs on the other where it's like the highly produced thing where we can like create magic and you'll believe it and the thing where it's uh, like fantasy but also a comedy so it doesn't really matter if like there's the magic is really goofy looking because mm-hmm. That's the point. And also, like, that was... You, another thing on your list was, like, Mystery of Irma Vath by Charles Ludlum. Yes. And it's, like, right, like, we... That, I think, just, like, sort of harkens back to the problem of genre in general because it's, like, I guess on this bell curve, is there a point where something sort of stops being fantasy, horror, sci-fi and shifts more completely into parody or satire? And... You know, it's funny, like earlier when we were talking about the things that we've been enjoying lately, mentioned Star Wars and then this musical. What's it's it called? A, yeah, it's a, it's a musical. It's just called like a Star Wars musical. A Star Wars musical. Like right. Like yeah. it's like because Star Wars itself is already sort of a parody of Westerns. Like it's like, let's do a goofy mm-hmm. space Western. And then so it's like parody of parody. And at what point? Yeah. I feel like there's some fans who'd like bristle. Like I, <laughs> to quote Star Wars, I like could hear like a, <laughs> like a million voices crying out in pain and then silenced. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that you do kind of cross the bell curve into say comedies that use fantastical elements. I'm gonna say I love. I have never seen it, but I love Blythe Spirit by Noah Coward. I loved it because I saw Angela Lansbury in it. R.I.P. That would make me love it even more. But that's a show about ghosts with ghosts but it's very much like very funny and I think is I don't think anyone would call it like a fantasy show or a horror show I don't know maybe not but again we're getting into categorization of things which we don't want to spend like forever on but I think recognizing that there is a bell curve yeah I also want to clarify I didn't really use the bell curve as in like something is genre or isn't it was more of kind of a like a almost budget thing of like something is like very high budget or like something mm-hmm. is you know shoestring budget uh like i would say both like puffs and cursed child are fantasy one is just like very highly polished and the other one is like very like rough around the edges right right and i think but also like that's another bullet point on our outline right is like that in this spectrum of genre there are plays and musicals and things that by and large aren't horror sci-fi or fantasy genre works but that maybe incorporate like an element here a trope there yeah and Mm -hmm. that sort of just to put be on the nose about it like is not actually what we're talking about here you know like i think of the play the humans that has like a bit of a supernatural turn at the end and uh you know there's there's a lot of examples like that like even Blythe Spirit like there are ghosts but it's not a horror play 
And Danielle, I'm so, yeah. really glad you mentioned The Mystery of Irma Vep. It's one of my favorite plays. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually want to go back to that for a moment and go in a little, a little tiny soapbox here because it's funny, The Mystery of Irma Vep was, I believe, the most produced play of the 90s. Or like, if not the, it's like way up there. Um, At you one could, point, yeah. Yeah, you can like look this up but it was like very highly produced at that time uh so it's wild to me that like we don't see more things like that i would also say mystery of Irmavet interestingly kind of did both on that bell curve in that it was a spoof of like horror uh sci-fi fantasy um but also like very committed and charles ludlam who wrote it and starred in it, was known, did a lot of, actually, a lot of genre plays that were parodies, but was also, like, highly specific and technical in, like, how he would do them. And I will say this, in that I went, you know, if you're based in New York, you can do this too. I went to the Lincoln Center uh, Performing Arts Archives, and I watched the original Charles Ludlam production from the 80s of The Mystery of Irma Vep, and... It was, I was shocked at just how precise it was and how the effects actually looked like really good considering like they, they didn't probably have much of a budget. Yeah, so that's, that's a fun thing to check out. But goes to say like a show that was so popular at one time that I feel like it is weird to me that like we don't see more shows like it when it did so well. Well, I think that that's actually a good segue into talking about where we do see genre theater these days which I'm going to say is like primarily with trusted IP you know we got your Harry Potters Back to the Future is coming to Broadway I'm very excited because I'm a Back to the Future girl and also in TYA and in school and community theater it's really huge I mean She Kills Monsters has been on the most produced plays list for a couple years now Star Mites has been produced over and over. Uh, Zombie Prom is huge. Really? I mean, I was just looking. Zombie Prom is pretty big in terms of. No, no, like, no. That really was licensing. to Starmites. Oh no, Starmites is huge. I've shouted this out on the podcast before, but I just read Stacy Wolf's book about amateur and like community and school theater, and she talks about like this phenomenon of how like Starmites flopped, but Starmites has totally made back its investment in licensing. Damn, good for them. Yeah. There's three different versions you can license on the Concord Theatricals website. Um, you can do Starmites Light, Starmites Pro, and Starmites High School. So, if anyone's out there looking for a show to do. But if they wanted to confuse people further, they could do Starmites Express. <laughs> that would require a really solid dramaturg. Um, <laughs> I will say, that, and, and recently, the most popular high school shows came out in a play survey. And, like, a lot of them fall into the genre category. We have Puffs. We have Peter and the Starcatcher. We have a lot of Alice in Wonderland. I mean, it, The Addams Family was the biggest high school musical. I mean, it's huge for kids. It's for kids, teens, community theaters. Like, genre theater, it's kind of thriving. So I think that, like, our question kind of here is, okay, well then why isn't our other sectors of theater kind of paying attention and investing? And investing also in development of these kinds of works. What that immediately makes me think of is that it's because we devalue what teenagers care about. I mean, hmm. yes. 
I think that's one point. But is it just that? Or is it just that people think it's still too niche? Which I find funny to talk about because genre, sci-fi, superheroes, it's never been bigger. Yeah, it's not. It's not niche. It's very mainstream. It's never been more huge. So like, why? What? How? How do we get people to talk about it and put these kinds of stories on stage? It's interesting because I would actually say uh, your both your points are sort of two sides of the same coin a little bit. Um, what I mean by that is, uh, like in the early two thousands, you had like. Like, the Spider-Man movies, like, those were the superhero movies. You know, Batman came in the 90s, and then you had, like, more Batman later. But it wasn't until, you know, like, pretty recently, relatively recently, like, we've had this huge superhero, you know, explosion, like, you know, how many superhero movies come out each year. Um, But at that time, like, when they were doing the Spider-Man movies, it was very much like, oh, this is a very niche thing. It's just people know Spider-Man, they know Batman, but, like, we can't really go beyond that. And... I think now, because of the fact that, like, we have these Marvel movies, who goes to them? Like, a lot of younger people, teenagers, also, like, people in their 20s, 30s. So, again, like, to what Danielle said, it's, you know, like, undervaluing, uh, like, what teenagers value and younger people. And then on the other side, like, you know, Alex made the point of, like, oh, but these movies, you know, like, it's so, you know, like, they're so popular. So I think also the flip side is, like, a lot of theaters say, okay, who is our subscriber base? Many of them, it's, it's like, older white people, upper class. Are they going to see the Marvel movies? Like, the Marvel movies can make billions a year, but these are the people going to see, like, you know, are they driving those numbers? I don't know. I don't have the metrics, but I wouldn't say, like, you know, people who, like, who live on the Upper West Side and make, I don't know, three million a year are like driving the next, I don't know, Guardians of the Galaxy. And I would I would say I don't have the metrics either. I will say that I haven't seen many people over maybe say 65 at a con, but I've seen a lot of people up to 65 at a con. I think that there is an appetite there, but I think that the this is our subscriber base argument personally on like a much broader level than even this conversation is not gonna survive for much longer. Because the um, subscribers aren't surviving for much longer. Yeah. 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 Which and and I should say like, it is it is a generalization. You know like. Yeah. Like, not everyone. You know, like not everyone who goes to the theater is like, you know, in their seventies and white and makes you know tons of money. But like, a lot of theaters are, like, looking for like that audience, yeah. um, or try or trying to appeal to that audience. And so I think the question, my question is like, at what point is theater going to be like, oh, these people are moving on in their journey. Uh, Like, we're going to look for, yeah, a new audience. I think we're reaching that point. I think we're reaching that point. And one of the things I wanted to point out is that the new play exchange has over a thousand plays tagged as horror, over a thousand plays tagged as fantasy, over a thousand plays tagged as science fiction. These plays are being written they're just not being workshopped, developed, produced. And so I, I see I see the point there that like we're trying to appeal to subscribers, but I think at the same time, a lot of theaters are also saying, but why aren't young people coming to the theater? And there's a number of reasons why young people aren't coming to the theater if, if they're not, if they're not, you know, us going to the theater all the time. 
I want to go back to this like original works versus trusted IP conversation also in the context of not so much subscriber base, but like the related topic of just audience age, I guess, because it's like if we're looking at Broadway and we're looking at like the upcoming production of Back to the Future, these sorts of adaptations that are based on quote unquote trusted IP It makes me wonder, or what it says to me, because it's often older IP from the 70s, 80s, 90s, that they're making a lot of assumptions about who their audience will be um, and who will be interested. And I wonder about, I think age is a factor in Mm -hmm. this conversation of like whether something's original or trusted IP, because it's like trusted IP to who? I think that the fact that, you know, things like, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. Obviously, like those are there are uh, of course examples that like transcend that completely. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Back to the Future is hugely popular among Gen Z. I don't know. I mean, I went to AwesomeCon two years ago when Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox did a panel, and it was sold out, and there were all ages there. So like maybe I just know myself, and I'm a big fan, but. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying, though. It's a question of whether theater that is incorporating these elements is being created for people who actually are enjoying what is hot right now. Is that kind of what you're getting at in, in, the, yeah. in, the, horror, in the genre world? Yeah, I think so. because I, And I think particularly okay. when we're talking about like sci-fi fantasy more so than horror, it's like... Because one of the examples we have on our list of something that's like a recent sci-fi show is Be More Chill. And that was clearly, that was both an adaptation of a YA novel. So like, you know, arguments and semantic arguments abound about whether that's original or trusted IP or what, because... Then it goes back to trusted IP to who, because I'd never read the book, but, you know, and major questions about, like, who is this show for? I remember we're really going on at the time. You know, there were more traditional Broadway audiences going because they're hearing, oh, this is like the hot new show. This is like this was such a runaway smash off Broadway that it transferred. So now I got to see it and they're leaving and they're like, well, this certainly was not for me. But like teenagers and college students were going bananas for it and you know I think you know at the time I was identifying that as also like very much an example of the public mainstream adults critics what what have you devaluing what young people care about or enjoy but like I think you're onto something is it kind of sounds like there's also something to be said of like regardless of whether something appeals to like a certain demographic who maybe doesn't usually go to theater there's that question of are they reaching that demographic or are there like obstacles to that so for example like that of critics is it's like oh if a bunch of critics are like oh this is really bad you know are the people who like don't fit those demographics of the critics gonna say like oh but actually i would really love this or are they just gonna be like oh someone said it's bad 
like it has one star I guess it's not for me or even just theater mm-hmm. in general like it's you know it's always tricky with these questions like when you don't have the the data or like to back yeah. it up but anecdotally I know people who are like super into genre stuff and are just like oh theater isn't for me like I don't feel like I belong in a theater uh like it's not for me and so it's the question of like oh but would something like back to the future reach them and like what bridge does it have to jump over for them to be like oh it's back to the future which i love but it's theater which i don't like but like there's enough you know driving behind it to like get me to go and it's again you know back to genres marketing that's very true one thing that i was thinking of while you were talking danielle is that one recent show that I think has kind of, they've really gotten into the Gen Zers all the way up to the subscriber base is Ride the Cyclone, which was at Mm. Arena Stage and became a TikTok sensation, but also like sold out at Arena Stage because the subscribers and the people who had money, everyone was going to it. Because if you, again, if you hear something is good, you're going to go to it, maybe regardless of the material. So... Actually, I'm curious, Andrew, what do you think about that in terms of, like, using theater as a gateway to, like, sci-fi, horror, fantasy? Yeah. Um, hmm. Sorry, do you mean that as opposed to using sci-fi, horror, fantasy as a gateway to theater? Yeah. Oh. Interesting. I, I'm interested, like, like if okay. I had been, like... I know that you have some horror experience, but I was like, oh, if I had been like, okay, Danielle, like to get into horror, you have to go see Grey House as opposed to like, Danielle, I'm going to sit down and make you watch like Oculus or something like that. Or like a bunch of Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a great thing because I, I was thinking the same time, like based on what you were saying of like getting like Gen Z and like an older subscriber base. And I think there is something to be said because I, I also like don't want to discount like the the older subscri- uh, subscriber base Absolutely in that like not because a lot of them are willing to go to anything yeah and I think that that can't be overstated oh yeah I used to sell subscriptions a lot of them will go in for the whole season and say if we don't like it we don't like it but we want to support and I think that that's a plus 110 percent if you and can do it great on both sides of me at Grey House the other night were pretty old women yeah who were using hearing yeah. devices and did not enjoy themselves but oh. I think <laughs> so those 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 older women aside I mean I think that might be like the answer to your question uh, Alex about back to the future is like an older person might be like oh like I know that movie you know I remember that when that movie when it came out like I'll see this thing and they'd be like oh even though I'm not generally a fan of sci-fi maybe or well, maybe or maybe not they might be like oh this is something that like it works for me even though it's not like what most musicals are about because I I know the movie, it's a classic movie. And then on the Gen Z side, they might say, oh, you know, and so it's sort of like they might be coming into that perspective of like the gateway to sci-fi, whereas someone from Gen Z, again, you know, generally speaking, I don't know, might come from it the other gateway of like, oh, like I love Back to the Future, I love sci-fi, okay, now maybe I'm more into theater. Again, generalizations, but I think there can be this idea I think it's also especially for horror uh, of people who aren't horror fans who will go to a play that's more horror has like a horror bent to it because they'll think oh it's a play like it's happening in front of me it can't be like that scary like I know like I know who these performers are 
Um, I think about Grey House in the sense of like, oh, it's like, I know who Laurie Metcalf is. Like, you know, she's right in front of me. Like, I'm not... I'm not going to be that afraid. Whereas in a movie, I mean, obviously you're suspending your disbelief either way, but I feel like there's something in a movie where, like, the lights go out, it's on a screen, you can see, like, anything could happen. It could be the most terrifying thing. Whereas for theater, it's like, okay, you know, I'm in a theater, maybe I'm used, you know, I'm used to the theater. It's with actors who are, like, doing this live. So, like, nothing, like a, like a humongous spider isn't going to, like, burst out from the back and, like, eat someone. Like, like, it can't, you know, I mean, like, or if you had the budget for that, incredible, amazing, like, do it. But, like, you kind of have this but expectation. But you'd say, of like, like, wow, what an amazing, like, practical effect. I, you know, I think yeah, that could be it. Like, yeah. if it, it's like, one, I don't think that would ever happen. But, like, if someone had the budget to do it, I think you would, like, that's the thing. You'd be suspending your disbelief, like, up to a point where you'd be like, oh, wow, amazing. Like, they had the budget for that. Whereas in a movie, mm-hmm. you're not thinking, like, they had the budget for that, but you're just like, oh, no, a spider. I think that there is a point in the theater where you could feel that way. And I, like, overwhelmed and, like, oh, there actually is a spider. And this is coming from somebody who saw Into the Woods in Central Park and for a split second thought there was actually a giant in Central Park. I think we should talk a little bit about Grey House because we've all seen Grey House. Yes. Yeah. And... For me, when I watch horror, you know, part of why I have such, like, sensations and, like, physical reactions to horror is because you are there with the character. You There's there's up-close shots. You are seeing what the character is seeing. Mm-hmm. You don't have that same vantage point in theater, Um, sitting in, like, the mezzanine. I hate to say it, but I was going to say speak for yourself because I was in the front row. <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I was in the front row of the mezzanine, actually. Front row center (laughs) of mezzanine row A. Thank you, TDF. But, like, I see what you're saying. Like, you don't have the, like, you don't have a camera telling you where to look. Exactly. And I think that there's a lot of effects they did really well. I still had jump scares. There was, like, a jump scare I felt like did not work for my vantage point particularly so i was a little sad about that which was it the one where the where the girl was like above the cat above the fridge oh Oh. i'm so glad you mentioned that so i was literally covering my eyes so i missed it (laughs) so so i think i mean i saw her once she was there but i missed the the jump scare reveal it's funny um, I hate jump scares. Like this was it's like Andrew when you were saying like maybe someone who like generally doesn't like horror, generally isn't super comfortable or into horror would like be more willing to see a horror play. That is true. Like speaking for myself, like I would say that that is true. Um but I am still a wimp and was still absolutely watching parts of it through my fingers because I cannot stand extended suspense and I cannot, I hate jump scares. I startle way too easy. So I don't know. That's just, that's my, was through my fingers. I think we all had experiences with that jump scare, but Alex, I want to hear yours first. So my experience with that jump scare was that it happened and it shocked me, but it definitely shocked me less than if I had been able to properly see it from the balcony because it took me a second to see that someone was there and what i will say and this is related to it 
is that Danielle, what changed horror for me forever was when someone pointed out the central place that music and sound has in making you jump scare in mm. film and in TV. Oh, I know. And so, and the reason I'm saying it's central to like talking about this this jump scare is because I think that if there hadn't been a sound cue or a music cue, I wouldn't have even known what was going mm. on. I wouldn't have even thought to be scared. Mm. I will say that I'm still a little bit of a wimp. I have gotten more into horror in the last like five years or so, but I still like, if I'm getting really scared, I'll just cover my ears and I'll watch. And that helps me. Yeah, I think if I were to watch things on mute, it would be helpful. Yeah, I would recommend that. Because, yeah, and um, I think that's part of it is like, I mean, shout out to Grey House because that sound design was pretty impeccable oh, in yeah. my ear. But yeah, yeah, like yeah. 100% amped up the the fear yeah. factor for me was like keenly aware of how much the sound and music was playing into that. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I want to say, Alex, I'm I'm so glad you shared the story of that jump scare because I had kind of the inverse experience. In the front row, I could see the actor getting into place for that jump Aww. scare. And so right when I noticed that, I went, oh. And later, uh, Liv Rigdon, who saw it with me, said, like, oh, you like I wasn't scared because when you went, oh, I noticed the actor as well. And then when they popped out, I was like, oh, yeah, it was the actor who was like, like crouching in the cabinet and they came out so you had the opposite of like oh I didn't even really see it so I think that also kind of goes to the point where in theater it's like with horror theater depending upon where you're sitting there's like a little I don't want to say like I don't know if it's like shoddiness but it's like again again to your point of like we don't have the benefit of the camera like drawing you in like zooming in being like you were going to get jump scared so not to say that theater can't pull off these amazing effects because it absolutely did, but like it's like a little bit there's a little bit more safety I feel like of of people who are easily scared of being like, "Oh, I may not even quite catch this or I might like see it coming." That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. It, again, kind of to my point earlier of like because it's all acting out live in front of you it's like to some extent there's an expectation of like oh it is we are only going to see things that like actors can do live and like can pull off live i think it's time for a bit of an intermission don't you i think so time to stretch our legs a bit and just want to remind y'all to join our patreon We want to give a big shout out to our first patron, Sharon Stritch. Thank you so, so much for joining. And you can be among the ranks of Sharon if you join our Patreon starting at $5 a month at patreon.com slash partialviewpod. And you can check out all the perks that you get at each of the different tiers. But they include bonus content and cut content and... Like the one I just gave Sharon and lots of fun things up to and including seeing a show with us. Yeah, we're worth it. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) definitely check us out at patreon.com slash partial view pod. And now we're back to our fantastic conversation with Andrew. I would also love to talk about the difference between horror, which I feel like Grey House is marketing themselves as a horror play, and more gothic horror. 
which I feel like a lot of theater falls into, either by nature of the source material or by nature of its execution. And I went into Grey House expecting horror, and I came out being like, I feel like it's horror gothic border. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear kind of like where you think in today's terms, horror and gothic horror kind of separates. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, it's funny. I don't, I, I do, I don't want to, I don't want to burst your bubble because I feel like you're so excited to be like, delineate it. But again, I think I'd just say like there are many different types of horror. So to me, it's like, I would say there's gothic horror the same way that there's like psychological horror, that there's then like, like body horror, that there's like the kind of blood and guts, like torture porn horror, but there, there's so many different kinds, like in some things, like you might have something that's very gory and trying to like gross you out and something there might be like zero jump scares, zero blood and guts. And it's just like, oh, this is really, really like creepy and eerie to think about which is maybe like a bit more tense. I mean, gothic horror is its own thing, but oftentimes, well, it can be, actually it can be a little bit of both, but yeah, I'd say like there's definitely the the gothic genre of itself, which is not it's always not, horror. It's not, but a lot of theater is derived from it, which is why I wanted to talk about it a little bit. Like like a lot of, yes. a lot of oh, big yeah. names, like Sweeney Todd, Phantom of the Opera, etc. Yeah, and like what I'm hearing is that it's these sort of sub-genres, if you will, of the broader horror genre sort of just rely on different tropes or different versions of tropes. I think that's at risk of maybe like sound like I'm simplifying it. I think yeah. that's like a I've fair sort of been assessment. Saying, yeah. Like for me, horror equals thrills, gothic horror equals chills. And like that's how I Interesting. See it. And I don't need everyone to agree with me. But that's sort of how I have set it across in my mind. And there's definitely, there's definitely pieces, like I would say like, um, like the Haunting of Bly Manor, Haunting of Hill House series on Netflix, I think crossed the difference Absolutely. there. You know, I go to see, I'm trying to think of like what I've seen, Sweeney Todd. And like the most frightening thing about that show to me is the train whistle, which is, you can argue, is still like a horror element. Which they cut in this revival. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's all kind of a spectrum. Like, when I think gothic, a lot of kind of like the linchpin of gothic work is like like something from the past being like dredged up uh, in the present. And so sometimes, like, some gothic works are like very light on horror where it's just like, oh, something from the past, like a secret from the past is kind of dredged up that people are afraid of. And it could just be like, a, I don't know, like some kind of uncomfortable family scandal. But then sometimes it's like, oh, a secret is dredged up and like there's a haunting and like there's a ghost mm -hmm. and so again it's a spectrum of like sometimes the ghost is like a metaphor or or is literal but like isn't really meant to be like that terrifying perhaps for the audience but maybe more for the characters and sometimes it'll really lean in um and it'll be like oh this ghost is like terrifying for the characters for what it signifies but also like for the audience as well you know yeah, what so I'd say I it's think a, a that's, that hit on something for me just then as far mm -hmm. as like back to the question of why we don't see more like quote-unquote true horror on stage versus like a lot of the examples being sort of falling under gothic horror on stage is I think like there are so many examples of things on stage being designed to scare the characters and not the audience I think mm. the idea that like 99.9% .9 of the time I would venture to say no one in the audience is scared of the ghost in Hamlet. Mm. Yeah. 
But I will say I was not scared of the Dementors when I saw Cursed Child, but I know that they were supposed to be scary and chilling to everyone on stage experiencing them. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that also goes to a point of like what is like what is scary about a ghost? And what I mean by that is it's like in a lot of Shakespeare plays, like there's a ghost. And oftentimes it's just like it's like Shakespeare's just like, oh, I have this information from the past. I just have to impart, like, a ghost will come and tell the characters. And it's, or it's and often a metaphor. Yeah. And that's the thing is, like, you know, it's like, is Shakespeare being like, oh, this is going to really, like, creep the people out? Like, I, you know, I can't speak for Shakespeare. And I think that speaks to the production. That, like, some productions, it's just like, oh, we have this ghost that's just scary for the characters. It creates good drama. For, like Hamlet to learn this secret but then a production maybe one that's like trying to bring in you know maybe genre fans would be like oh we're gonna actually make the ghost scary um something else I think about like a Christmas mm-hmm. Carol um absolutely like sometimes I've seen productions where like the ghosts are just like people like a man in a sheet and like somewhere it's like there's the big rattle of the chains and like a ton of makeup and it's very we did an episode about all about a Christmas Carol last December and oh, um, that's funny. Charlie and Bruce, who Andrew, for context, are father and son who have played opposite each other in Christmas Carol many times. And Bruce has done a Christmas Carol for like 25 years. <laughs> and they've talked about a whole range of productions they were part of or have seen and definitely referenced like that for them, uh, if I'm remembering correctly from this episode, it's more effective when the ghost is sort of just it's a metaphor. It's scary to Scrooge. It's mm. psychological. And it like loses a lot of its power and meaning when you're just trying to scare the audience. Yeah, I'm not actually, you know, I'm not a Dickensian no, scholar. Nor am I. But like, there is something very worth mentioning about like, I mean, to even put it broader, just like the way that people over history viewed things like ghosts that like we associate with horror and in some ways it's like oh they may not like find that like even think of that as horror um especially like even culturally like some cultures are just like oh a ghost is just like the spirit of your ancestor Mm -hmm. and like that's a positive thing and like a really good thing um so it's worth kind of mentioning that like in a western american lens especially like contemporary there is this kind of horror framing and so i feel like that's in some ways why you kind of mentioned like a lot of horror comes in to theater through gothic horror because it could be something like originally started as like this is theater it's about a family it's about secrets it has nothing to do with horror but then in our lens we said oh this could so easily lend itself to horror that like let's just make it that so i think that's why we see also a lot of i want to mention like a lot of horror productions are adaptations of like really classic Mm -hmm. old works um, on the list, I noticed you had, there are many uh, Dracula adaptations. So uh, I added Frankenstein adaptations. Yeah, so these are things that are, like, popular works and, like, kind of almost, like, transcending the boundaries of horror or, like, the the label of it. And then today we might say, okay, mm-hmm. are we going to lean into yeah. that Yeah, which I think is an interesting question to ask of all of these genres of horror, sci-fi, fantasy. Like, do we lean into it or do we not? I think that, you know, say, like... I just keep going back to Harry Potter and the Cursed Child because I don't know if this is still the case, but I know that when they first opened, part of their keep the secret situation was 
we're refusing to do backstage tours because we don't want to reveal how we do the magic. I'm pretty sure that's still true. Maybe not for the same reason. Like, I think they've sort of abandoned the whole keep the secrets tagline, but it's still very much the, like, magician's code of, like, (laughs) don't tell anybody how you do it. And I think that it's worth noting that that Harry Potter and the Cursed Child has only had, like, major productions, like West End, New York, and I think it was San Francisco. Yeah, and I... yeah want to say Australia for some reason. Oh, but maybe. I could be deeply wrong. Maybe. So I'm curious as we think about like going forward, how to kind of like funnel these kinds of stories. I'm curious if Cursed Child is going to say, okay, regional theater, you can put this on. Here are all of our secrets. Mm-hmm. Don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Are they going to lean into you can only do it a specific way? Are they going to give people freedom to present these magic tricks in this fantastical world in the way that best befits like this institution and this community? I'm just really curious. This budget? Yeah. I'm really, really curious to know like what the future of something like that is versus like Peter and the Starcatcher is very, or at least was, produced for a very long time because it kind of has that more low budget um you need some rope yeah that's about it and a glove to be the bird yeah yeah and um, like but also like puffs like we and said I'm, before yeah and then like going off of that too with science fiction like it depends on what kind of science fiction and we don't need to get into all the different kinds of science fiction mm-hmm. that are out there and that can be dramatized but like You have things like people turning into zombies or like aliens turning into humans. You have the DeLorean is going to go back in time. Is it just going to be a bunch of projections and lights? Who knows? Um, So it's really a question of like how how can we sustain those kinds of I don't want to just bring it back to like production effects. Well, but but I think the production effects are really relevant or like primarily relevant Mm -hmm when you're talking about like the specific needs of a specific sort of like subgenre of this where like right like there is no like you don't want like a sci-fi you know something or other with like monsters aliens that sort of thing to look like the end of beauty and the beast exactly like that just wouldn't work versus Something that's more psychological, that's like ghost, supernatural, things that are still based in, like, for the most part, humans, I think might be, I'm not going to say like straight up a necessity for doing this work on stage, but like definitely has skewed that way and I understand why. Something else I want to just state from our brainstorm is that a lot of sci-fi fantasy horror work has been very popular in like the fringe and festival world and I know that like when New York Musical Festival was a thing R.I.P. there you you would get a couple of these every single year of the more genre kind of shows yeah and and that is where like you know no one had high hopes for the for kind of the production quality of effects like that. But to clarify, it was also most often um, having, like I read for them for like a decade 
if there was something that was more like truly genre, it was more along the lines of like Puffs, mm-hmm. where it was closer to parody. Yeah. Than something that was like earnestly trying to like pull this off in a way. Mm. Or it was adaptations of like classic gothic literature. There was a lot of Dracula. There was a lot of Frankenstein. There was a lot of, um, you know, things, things more in that realm being adapted for New York Musical Theater Festival. And so like, but I think it also relates to like, yeah, these things came up more in festival settings, perhaps because they aren't necessarily getting larger opportunities to be produced. Andrew looks like he's going to burst. I know. <laughs> yeah, oh, I am. Because uh, there, there are two things that, like, two paths that just brought me down. One, going back, well, to this a little bit earlier, um, Alex, you brought up the great point of, like, uh, the magic behind the cursed child and, like, the ways they do it. Are they going to share it? And that made me think about a lot of these works, if they're horror, sci-fi, fantasy, like a few of these things, especially the more commercial ones, have like a kind of secret sauce behind them. And it's like, to what extent do you say like, oh, we're gonna like license you the script, but also say like, here is this way to like pull off this specific gambit. I think the classic example, which like you mentioned, it's when you mentioned Peter and the Starcatcher, but I think of just like Peter Pan and Flying by Foy, the company that they were just like, if you're going to do Peter Pan and you're going to have people fly, (laughs) you got to do it. Yeah, you got to do it with us. Like, and so I wonder to what extent we'll see like other iterations of that, of like, oh, if you're doing Cursed Child, like here's maybe the specific company to like get your kind of magic equipment from other shows as well so that I don't have the answer but I think raises an interesting question about like the kind of pairing of a script with like a specific technology that like pulls off what that script contains yeah because I think it's also the question of like you could also say oh like here's the script and just kind of like do it the best you can but again that goes back to the point of like is that then how the creators intended it, do the people with the rights, are they gonna be like, oh, but you, you know, are they gonna say, oh, either we like that you're doing it your way and like you don't need to learn our secrets or like we'd rather you learn our secrets so it would look like our standard. Yeah. So I think there's, that's the yeah. tough question. It's like how, I think um, that's partly why I would say we don't see more or why the majority of what we do see in the genres in theater is stuff that is, vague or like flexible enough to be left to the imagination Mm. and to be done at like I guess a range of budgets I was okay well I'll go into the the second thing that sorry because I just wanted to comment on um you mentioned festivals and I'm a huge fan of fringe festivals a huge huge fan of the Edinburgh fringe and you see a ton of genre stuff at the Edinburgh fringe oh I'm so jealous um, if I could go every year, I could. I, I mean, I would. Um, if only I could. But that kind of leads into something as well. I think about this door of, like, in the U.S., we have, like, a specific kind of pipeline of things. And then it's, like, the way that regional theaters and Broadway, like, interact and, like, We have an episode about other. that, too. <laughs> That's the thing. I was just going to say. I was just going to say, I'm sure you have an episode oh, about yes. it. I'm like, I'll save that <laughs> for that episode. But it's worth mentioning, like, in other countries... 
whether because of the way they do theater or just the culture of the country, like they're totally different. Like there are countries where you see much more genre theater because maybe one, that's like something that's like a bigger part of the culture or two, it's just like the like the pipeline is different in such a way that it's it's able to like get through. So speaking only for someone who knows like a like I don't know outside of the US like a bit about UK theater, I think about how many things like start at the fringe and then go elsewhere in the UK and the fringe the Edinburgh fringe being like such a big fringe festival has that affordance where you can have people like putting up genre shows and being like this is what we want to do, this is what we think is fun and then having those those shows like you know, tour a bit around um, the UK, not being a huge region, and like going, you know, to different places. I think about, I don't know, I don't know if it actually, I don't want to say it was a fringe show, like, I don't know if it actually started there, but uh, The Woman Mm -hmm. in Black, I want to mention, Mm -hmm. because that, it actually just closed on the West End and was running for a super long time. I don't want to give an exact number, but like... No, it was like the longest running play in... The West End, and yeah. I actually saw it a little bit a year and a half ago. I want to say they did it briefly at the McKittrick in New York, mm. and I went yes. to see it. I saw that uh, production touring in Chicago, but yeah. So I think that's something where again, it's like it came to the U.S. a little bit and like toured around. You know, people saw it, but like in the U.K., that is a huge deal. That yeah. show, and like it that's scared me. <laughs> I screamed, but again, it was another thing where like. The effects were mostly pulled off with, like, really well-cued-up lighting. And, Mm -hmm. like, there's that one moment I remember where, like, truly the lights just, like, flicker. And the woman in black is, like, in the rocking chair and then she's not. Mm -hmm. That would get me. Yeah, I I don't want to go into, like, too much. Like, that's when I don't want to spoil too much. But I think when a lot of people say, like, oh, it's just so hard to do horror theater, I feel like The Wound in Black is, like, I I would say that's the gold standard of horror theater and one where it's just, like, a really smart concept and the way they kind of fake you out is really fun. Mm -hmm. I think very effective. I don't want to say too much, but when I, like, realized what was happening, I was like, oh, that's such a fun, I don't want to say gimmick because it's just so, it's, like, so Mm -hmm. well done the way that they're like, oh... (laughs) <laughs> what a what a twist to like make it extra spooky. Yeah, go go see yeah, it. I somehow. think like what I'm getting from this is that like maybe theater is just more suited to sort of more atmospheric psychological spookiness. Mm, I think there's room for a lot in the realm of theater. I think there's room. I think there's but I think that's the core. Yeah, I don't know. I think that there's I think there's a lot of room. I think what kind of like this conversation has helped me land on is that I think theater and genre pieces can really like help and be amicable to one another which I've never not thought um (laughs) just like even like the stuff that I've that I've studied like in school and in my spare time like I think that the subculture of theater which is a really big subculture but I would still call it kind of like a subculture um is not unlike the other subcultures that you find at say like a comic-con Andrew, what was this show? Maybe it's not relevant. I'm just like not remembering the details that you and someone else were talking about some like immersive thing that was like underwater. It was a thing that you saw. Oh, you and one other person were talking about this like weird, weird 
like psychedelic almost. Oh, I know what you're, yes. I don't okay. know if that's relevant yeah. to this. I'm just remembering that that sounded crazy. Yes, it, I think it is actually, yes. So that is an immersive theater show called Bottom yes. of the Ocean. But that, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's an immersive show. And again, it's like we didn't bring in Sleep No More, but also kind of throw mm-hmm. that in. And I'd say both of them are shows that I think going back to the, what you mentioned about like a kind of gateway into horror or like horror light in that it's like they're not really scary, but they have like some horror kind of aesthetics to them. And we haven't even talked them. about like Hitchcock who like has a yeah. ton of crossover into theater like in different ways yeah so oh my god maybe we oh, need to yeah. have you back andrew i don't know <laughs> i mean i'm always i am always happy to talk about horror fantasy sci-fi i'll do it um but yeah bottom of the ocean uh, i'll tell you a bit about that that's actually um so it's andrew it's funny also named andrew and hopefully i pronounce his last name uh i believe it's andrew hofner uh is how i pronounce his last name um, but he has a company, uh, House World, that does immersive theater. And so their latest one that I believe closed last December was Bottom of the Ocean. And this really beautiful piece, um, actually very, very therapeutic, very relaxing, exploring ritual. And so it had kind of a like a macabre design to it. It was located actually in the basement of a church. So it had kind of those vibes, dim lighting, um, but really like beautiful piece in which you would kind of take part in these various rituals. So you can kind of see what's like horror adjacent, but like the rituals are kind of nice things about like lighting a candle and like sharing something good that happened in your day. And gradually they would kind of build over time. There's one where you could whisper either into a conch shell or into an actor's ear a big regret that you have in life so these things that were very cathartic very therapeutic and again like i would say like i don't know if i'd call it a horror piece i think i wouldn't but but you could make things like it's horror adjacent and it kind of has certain vibes to it that are a little spooky that I think yeah. going back to the point made the very beginning about the thesis like bring people in and kind of intrigue That people. does feel like the sort of safety of the theater and like the ability to sort of ease your way into the genre like Sleep No More. Yeah, like I can't believe we didn't mention Sleep No More yeah. yet and didn't mention and I also can't believe it took us this long to us uh, for someone to say the word macabre but <laughs> but there's an element in i think horror horror adjacent theater where you have to like the world building has to be such that like you genuinely don't know what is possible what will happen what might happen and when i think like and i think that's sort of part of what like sleep no more does really well and it sounds like what like bottom of the ocean did well is that it's like you are suddenly physically 360 in this world thrown in and like in an environment where things are happening around you and to you and i think yeah i'm super glad you mentioned that because that goes uh, back to something that uh someone i interviewed for my thesis said and i'm i'm gonna like not i'm gonna paraphrase it they, used it, they said it in a really beautiful way, but it was like, genre work, like, enchants your world. 
And so I think that goes to what you're saying, Danielle, of like, if you have something that's immersive, that's genre, it gives you this sense of like, there's something special about like the world you're going to enter. And that, you know, brings people in, draws people in. Yeah, there's like a feeling them. of like you're entering a portal. Like there's some some division between mm-hmm. like the world you've left and the world you're entering. Whereas I think in exactly. like traditional proscenium theater, trying to pull that off is a lot harder. And I think that also mm-hmm. might be something that Cursed Child in particular does really well because like they design the whole theater. Yeah. They they redesign and that's true of every theater that does a production of Cursed Child or has so mm-hmm. far is the entire building is redesigned to sort of fit the aesthetic and the world. I'm going to be really shameless and put in a plug and say that I had a paper published on uh, Harry Potter theatrical pieces and uh, fandom and Aristotelian mimesis a couple of years ago. And if anyone's interested in reading it, you can email us at partialviewpod at gmail.com and I'm always happy to send it around. Uh, no link uh, in the it's description. It's not available online anywhere. I mean, I guess I could put it on. I, okay. I don't actually don't know, but it's it was published in the British Fantasy Society Journal a couple of years ago, so I think they like own it now. I don't know. I don't know how that how academic Got publishing it. works. Let's be real. But um, yeah. So I actually talk a lot about how like the design and the elements of magic on stage all factor into part of how they use one tenant of Aristotle's ideas about mimesis and I also talk about like old school comic-con filk and I talk about a very Potter musical (laughs) so it's a really diverse paper if anybody is interested and that's my shameless plug my former therapist for all fans of Aristotelian mimesis (laughs) hit us up all right it's incredible (laughs) Uh, do we have any final thoughts before we wrap up yeah I could do some quick ones I mean one um, because I mentioned earlier about like you know different cultures and how we have this kind of like our own perspective of being in the US being in the West Uh, so actually one that I did want to throw I was going over my list of like genre shows that I have seen or read or know of and one that I read which actually I didn't get to see it but it was done in New York but was really big in the UK uh, is Snow in Midsummer. I knew that's the one you were going to say. Derived, yeah, derived from like a very famous classic Chinese drama. So it's kind of this interesting thing of like this drama, very famous, very well known in China, that was adapted in like a contemporary adaptation at the Royal Shakespeare Company and then like brought to the US. So again, other cultures. Oftentimes, we have more genre work. They, you know, whether they consider it genre work is up to them. Oftentimes, it's just like it's baked into, you know, like what the culture is or just how they, like how they do theater. I also wanted to mention I'm a huge fan of uh, Martin mm-hmm. McDonough, and they have a new Pillow Man production coming to the West End. So I am very much hoping that comes to Broadway. And again, a work that is like, I would say in horror, but also like crossing genres as well or kind of towing that yeah, line. Yeah, like to split hair is sort of more like thriller, mm-hmm. however we want to make yeah. that yeah, distinction. Yeah, I think... Yeah, let's not even get yeah, into that Yeah, I think that's tonight. a fair point. All this is to say, uh, like final thoughts are like there's a lot of... Like there's a whole spectrum of where something's coming from, what something is, when, when something's made. So things can like cross all different kinds of boundaries. Yeah, so... 
don't want to, you know, don't want to have anything in, in so, one box. Andrew, I think you have a few things to plug. All right. So I'll plug some things. Yeah, let's see. Let's see. So yeah, one is um, the Fantastical Seven, a spoof of a lot of fantasy works, uh, especially 80s fantasy uh, things like The NeverEnding Story, Labyrinth, Black Cauldron, Dark Crystal. Also things like fantasy video games like Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger, um, Kingdom Hearts. So that will be getting a stage reading at some point, hopefully a full production. The production staff is amazing. And then one thing that I really want to plug is The Witching yes. Hour, originally created by Dylan Guerrera, who's a classmate of mine, uh, or was a classmate of mine at Columbia, and they created this incredible short uh, horror play festival that I went to, and it's one of those fun things where they were like, again, they were like, oh, I wish I had someone to help me with this, and I was like, Dylan, do you know how much I love horror? And Dylan was like, how did that slip my mind? So we teamed up, we're gonna have like a full one act, uh, one of the short plays, it's gonna be a bit longer now, this fall around Halloween called Trophy Wife. Um, it's a really fun premise of a woman who smothers her husband with a pillow, lovely stuff, and then she talks to the pillow as if it's like sentient. Um, and then in the spring, uh, we'll have the horror festival, The Witching Hour, and unfortunately submissions will have just closed by the time this episode airs but we have gotten a whole bunch of submissions um we're gonna dive into them dylan and i we're really excited so that'll be playwrights from not just new york but all over the u.s who submitted their horror plays and i will say that i think that speaks to like the hunger for horror plays in that when I even just posted on social media about like potentially co-producing this festival, people were like, yes, like where can I send my horror plays, please? Like we need this. Um, so it is very fun to like have a project that people are like, please, we really want this to happen. And then see how many people like just had horror plays and like wanted to write horror plays. Yeah, so to kind of put a little like note on that, I think also like if you can create genre opportunities for people like a lot of things we discussed like people are hungry for genre work there just aren't a lot of outlets for it so i hope to see that change if i have yeah, yeah. to see that change as i want to see yeah like forward. i, I want to know more of what's possible since i'm like mm -hmm. just dipping my toes in because they're I'm not really into watching horror movies. I think, like, truly get out is my limit. Sounds <laughs> like we need another New York revival of Carrie. Mm, please, always, always give me that. <laughs> give me that camp classic. Well, with that, thank you so much for coming on tonight, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I I can talk genre work all, all I, like, night. <laughs> still, of course, like, have more thoughts, more feelings, like, yes. things that are just like pinging around in my brain now uh-huh but oh my god have we recorded for a long time yeah absolutely <laughs> anyway i don't know danielle did we solve genre plays in theater putting horror science fiction fantasy on stage what do you think yeah i think we solved the the pipeline issue we solved production values we solved all the things we solved all the things and we're all gonna see so much more in the future I actually am not being facetious. I think that we are. I think that we're about to see a lot more of these kinds of stories on stage. And I'm personally 
really excited for Doctor Who the musical when it eventually happens. I will be there in the front row. Whoever is writing that, someone out there is definitely writing that. Hire Alex as your dramaturg. Please. I will I will quit my job. All right. Uh, so tune in for when we solve more things on more episodes in the future. Bye. Bye. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time.